In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquities? That's what Micah asks. And St. Peter says to this God, All glory be forever and ever. Amen. From this we learn that God is unique in that he claims and keeps for himself all glory. All glory that is owed to the Savior. He alone saves. St. Paul wrote, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It is faithful indeed. It is exactly what Jesus said himself. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He does all the saving. We call this divine monergism. Monergism simply means that one person is doing all the work. Mono means one. God does all the work. Only Jesus' work saves. He does the work his Father gave him to do. Only Jesus finds. Only Jesus seeks. That is, only Jesus seeks those who need to be saved by being sought. He seeks sinners. He finds us whom the Father gave to him, and he loses none. We don't find Jesus. Jesus finds us. The Holy Spirit calls us by the gospel and brings us to Jesus. Our salvation is God's work alone. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. To talk about faith or repentance as something that we do in coming to God is to deny that we are saved by grace alone. It is to insert something that we must contribute into our salvation so that we no longer give all glory to God and so that no longer the question is asked, who is a God like you? He becomes like every other God. He becomes a God who requires that you do your part and he will reward it and perhaps fill in where you are lacking. To talk about our faith and repentance as our work is to rob Christ of glory. A smoldering wick does not reignite itself. A bruised reed does not strengthen itself. That which is humbled only Jesus can exalt. St. Luke writes that all the tax collectors and all the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. They themselves asked, who is a God like you? Now this word sinner referred to those who were openly acknowledged to be the scum of the earth. This wasn't a everybody's a sinner type of thing. It was a distinction that we make ourselves, and we know how obvious it is. Open sinners, unashamed, thieving, stealing, breaking all the commandments openly, ruining our culture. We have all the same complaints. And we're told that all of them 
drew near to Jesus. Jesus was not ashamed to associate with the worst. He said, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. And of course, this is what he means when he says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We are drawn by unique mercy that only Jesus shows because only Jesus works monergistically. He does everything needed for our salvation. Jesus, by suffering and dying for our sins, gives the clearest evidence of God's anger against the true nature of our sin because he suffers for it. He reveals God's anger at our sin. And we also, therefore, see the clearest evidence that he who knew no sin, who became one with our human nature but without sin, that he is still not ashamed to associate with us. He not only eats with sinners, he suffers and dies for them. St. Paul writes that while we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. He assumed human flesh and blood in order to do what our human flesh and blood could not do and never thought to do, to suffer, to be abased, and to trust in God to exalt him. In his flesh and blood, the Godhead was pleased to dwell. And in his flesh and blood, God was pleased to put himself under the law and obey it in our place. In the flesh and blood of Christ, God, who cannot suffer and die without having assumed our human flesh and blood, did suffer and die. Because he did assume our human flesh and blood. And he did it in order to do everything needed for our salvation. Having perfectly satisfied God's holy wrath against us, Jesus cast our sins into the deepest sea, as Micah says. It is into the death and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ, that we are baptized. And by baptism, those who are born in sin are born again to live to God and rejoice with God's angels. And what does this mean? It means that we learn never to begin to depend on what we do in participation with God, but on what we receive from God at all times. Our baptism teaches us to remain in this need. The deepest sea into which our sins are cast is the grave of Jesus, of whom Jonah serves as a picture and type. Our baptism buries us with Christ and raises us with Christ. That deep sea that Micah tells us about is the grave that Christ has sanctified for us. He leaves our sin there and he rises again. Our baptism teaches us not to depend on our own natural power or holiness, but entirely on God's grace in Christ. Our baptism teaches us to die and rise every day by confessing that we are sinners. And if we are sinners, then we are exactly and we remain exactly the type that Jesus receives. We are born spiritually blind, spiritually dead, and spiritually hostile to God, or enemies of God. Do you all remember learning that in your catechism? Spiritually blind, dead, and enemies of God? We're born spiritually blind. Jesus depicts us as sheep who get themselves lost. A sheep is a good picture of blindness. He can't find his way home. All he can see is what's in front of him. And he'll just keep wandering. He'll keep distracting himself. 
He's blind to whatever it is he's instinctively drawn to. Grass, even if there's a wolf nearby. And he can't turn back. They're foolish. That's what blind means. It means to be foolish and lost. And a sheep is lost in the wilderness without his shepherd. He contributes nothing to being found, only to getting more lost. See a picture here of divine monergism in his salvation. He does nothing. The only contribution is getting himself more lost. And Jesus has mercy on the spiritually blind. That's why he calls himself a shepherd. We're also born spiritually dead. As though blind weren't bad enough. And Jesus gives a picture of the spiritual death. Inertness, powerlessness, without strengthness. By telling the story of the coin that is lost. A coin obviously contributes nothing to being found. It doesn't polish itself, shine more brightly. It doesn't rattle in order to be heard or roll out from under the couch or anything like that. If the bleating of the sheep can be interpreted to, for us to imagine that at least that is a contribution of our salvation, Jesus tells this additional parable so that we might see how utterly helpless we are. A coin, however, has value. It is imprinted with an image upon it. And as it was with coins minted with the face of Caesar on it, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, because it's his. And we get annoyed at the devaluation of our money, but the money really belongs to whoever's ruling us, doesn't it? Of course it does. We're just using it in order to do, you know, participate in the market, right? So also it is that we were made in the image of God. We're like coins ourselves. Inasmuch as this image is the right knowledge of God, pure and holy fear, love, and trust of God, well, then we have lost this image entirely. Inasmuch as this image, however, simply refers to who made us, and we talk this way a lot, especially when defending the unborn. They're made in the image of God. If the image simply refers to who made us and who is seeking to find us, who has a rightful claim to own us, in this sense alone, we can say that we haven't lost the image of God. But even then, this image doesn't contribute to our salvation. It just explains why God wants to save us so much. He made us. He prepared a body for his eternal son to redeem us. Yet in the case of the lost coin, the image on the coin doesn't help it get found. No, the image on the coin is simply why the owner wants to find it. Our value is not in how much we know or contribute. Our value is given to us by God who made us and by his son redeemed us. Jesus is the second Adam who did not smear the image of God imprinted upon him. He is the perfect coin, so to speak. He fulfilled the image of God by obeying God in all things as the perfect substitute of sinful man. He spent himself entirely. Only his movements can save us, since we are not able to move ourselves. He alone gives us life. He is the light by which we are found that lights up the whole house. He mints us with his image imprinted on us so that we might be spent and invested for his gracious purpose. And if spending himself required his death 
and resurrection spending us requires that we learn daily to repent of our sins, to die to sin, and to rise with him, because we are his. His ownership of us is the only spiritual value we have, just as a coin's owner, the coin's value is nothing apart from the owner who ascribes value to it. Our life is in our Lord's hands. Finally, we are spiritually hostile, and we really get a picture of this with the prodigal son. This means that we're born with a will, a wicked will. We're born enemies of God. We're born not wanting what God wanted for us, but only wanting what could please us. The story of the lost son depicts this well. He was his father's son. His life consisted in being his father's son. He was born in his father's image, and his father loved him. But this son wanted his life to consist in carnal pleasures. So he asked for his inheritance, his life, so that he could go and pursue those things. As such, he hated his father. He hated his father because he thought his life was his own to do with as he wished. He didn't care where his life came from. He just wanted to enjoy it. Now, in regard to the lost sheep, Jesus compared himself to a shepherd. In regard to the lost coin, he compares himself to a woman. In regard to the lost son, Jesus compares himself to a father. In each case, he depicts himself as the one who tirelessly searches for that which is lost. It is very interesting, though, how it is that the father in his parable searches. We get a very clear picture of divine monergism with the shepherd and with the woman. The sheep and the coin do nothing. But lest we think that divine monergism means that we are just inanimate objects, chosen arbitrarily by God for him to do things with us. And lest we think that sin itself is just, you know, how we were made, we can't help it, and therefore we're not morally culpable. We see in this final story, it's quite long, and it makes our gospel lesson pretty long, we see in this final story both the active will in the Son as regards sin and rebellion, but also what will, what human will is involved when it comes to repentance. The lost son got lost by seeking his own pleasure. He squandered his inheritance on base delights. Now, we've seen this. We've seen Christians who are baptized and confirmed do this. And it breaks our hearts. And we want to rescue them. But what's being depicted here, to be sure, is it's not just the crass selfishness that abandons his father's home in order to seek a lewd life. Now, what's being depicted here is something that actually condemns us all. It is the natural hostility of human flesh to the gospel of Christ. It is pride, and it is the reason why we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Jesus is teaching us what it is for one to abandon the pure word of God, the pure religion, 
the truth of divine mercy that says, who is a God like you? To you be all glory forever. Jesus is teaching us what it is for one to abandon this God in favor of foreign, worldly doctrine. He goes to a faraway land. That is, he seeks wisdom and insight and approval, not from the church or from God's word, but from the world. And the world fills him up and then leaves him empty when his money is spent. Such is the religion of the world. If you have something to offer, they'll be your friends. But as soon as you have nothing to offer, you're on your own. This is why the unbelieving world encourages folks to be themselves and to find their identity in their own imagination. They are easy prey. Now we reviewed the word monergism, which means worked by one. The one true religion teaches that we are saved by God's grace alone, his work. Every false religion, though, is synergistic. You see the connection between the words. Sin means just together. It means that, that they require that one contribute something to his own salvation. You do your part, God does his part. Every religion has this in common other than the one that gives all glory to God. Now whether this be giving one's life to, a good, to good works or maybe better tithing or else giving one's life to the amusement of those who use you for their own designs. Whether it is the hypocritical religiosity or the decadent hedonism. In any case, the world teaches that man must do his part. And this is because the world wants to take advantage of what you must do. They're not concerned about what God wants from you. They think God is asking too much. They want to use you. And this is why the older son was angered by monergistic grace. Not because his father was cheated, but because he was cheated. He didn't love his brother. He judged his father for not getting something out of his brother. He judged his father for losing money, losing honor, losing dignity, and running out to this harlot-chasing son of his. He judged his father the same way that Jesus is judged for how he saves, saves us. He judged his brother in the same way that we are judged, by making bold to depend on pure grace and boasting in nothing of ourselves at all, but giving all glory to the God, in part from whom there is no God who shows mercy. The older brother wanted to take advantage of his brother's obedience. And so does every spiritual hustler out there. Every liar, every false doctrine, every corruption of the true religion wants to take advantage. He expected reward for what he himself had contributed. He was not an outright pagan. Neither were the Pharisees and scribes. He was a synergist. All false religions are. And if we want to get to the bottom of our enmity, our hostility against God, it is this, that we want God to recognize our contribution before we give him the glory of saving us. It is, it is a denial of grace. The young man left his father's home because he wanted independence. Independence from the one who gave him everything. 
He wanted to imagine that he was able to contribute to his spiritual well-being, and this is why and always why people leave churches where the pure gospel is preached. They want to own themselves. They're looking for what this young man was looking for. Carnal pleasure? Sure. But pride. Credit for whatever contribution they give. Self-discovery. They're looking for the world to praise them because God won't. All God does is save them. Lest we imagine that our spiritual corruption is just the result of some benign foolishness, foolishness like a sheep, or really not our fault like the lifelessness of a coin. Lest we say about original sin that it is a mere blot upon us, and that we were born this way and can't help it, and that God somehow owes us something. Jesus tells this parable to indict the evil will of those who go astray. Yes, he seeks out the lost sheep. Yes, he searches for the coin. And yes, he waits for his son to return. And we'll get to this in a second. But none of this is to say that the sheep, the coin, and the son were innocent victims. We are to understand what mercy we must show and promote towards those who need a savior. We must be very clear about the true rebellious and damnable nature of sin. And we can only dare to be clear about this when it comes to other people. If we acknowledge it in ourselves. And we do. We get to the nature of what sin is that robs Christ of glory. Not so that we might condemn the world but so that we might know where the world finds salvation. The world finds salvation where you find salvation, where Christ has mercy on you. How did the Father seek his son? He didn't run out into the wilderness. How did the Father seek his son? He didn't sweep out his house. In fact, he left it quite the same. He kept his home as a home where his son might always return to. He committed himself to the pure word of God that his son had abandoned. He did not entice his son to return by bringing some of the worldly pleasures that distracted him, by affirming him in his desire to be what God didn't create him to be. No, but by making it a home where God's children are welcomed, where God makes us what only he can make us be, forgiven sinners and sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, our Savior. 493 years ago today, the Augsburg Confession was publicly read before princes and the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. The effort here was not to revolutionize the church. The effort here was to defend what made the Christian church the Christian church since the days of old. It was to defend divine monarchism towards poor sinners who contribute nothing to salvation. They clarified and articulated the true nature of man's predicament. And above all, they clarified and preached the true nature of Christ's salvation. That we are justified, declared righteous by God, and washed of all of our sins through faith alone in God's grace in Christ. For all who believe 
that they are received into favor with God for Jesus' sake. That was the center of the Reformation because that has been the center of the church's life from the beginning. The older son didn't want mercy. He represents the scribes, the Pharisees, and, of course, the corrupt church that our Lutheran forefathers stood up against in order to keep the home, a home worth returning to, a hospital for the sick, a refuge for the weary, a place for sinners to find a gracious God. When we contend for the faith, we are contending above all, not for the right to say that we are right and you're wrong. Although people do tend to be wrong most all of the time when it comes to spiritual things. Search your heart and you know it. No, but we contend for the mercy that we depend on. We contend for the home that is ours. We contend for the truth that saves our souls. Because God is a God like no other. And to him belongs all glory. Because he gives us mercy and he gives us truth. And we know it. May God preserve this confession among us. Give us boldness to make it to those who need to hear the mercy of God and give us courage to hold on to it throughout our lives so that we might not lose it ourselves. It is his work in us. So any call to action here is a call to humble yourselves and to depend on the mercy of God, which alone will exalt you here in time and hereafter in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ unto eternal life. Amen.